Good morning. I'm going to be reading from the book of Judges, chapter 7, verses 1 through 18. For those of you who do not have a Bible, I direct your attention to the screen behind me. This is where the verses would appear, and uh, you can follow along as I read. Let's read from the God's Word. Then Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them, by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears uh, of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, People are still too many. They take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as the dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I'll save you and give Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the three hundred men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down to the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dream a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into our hand. And he divided 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of, of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who with me, then blow the trumpet also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we pray in response to this word that our faith would be strengthened and we would worship. 
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sadie, are you eager to go? Yes, I think you are. All right, off you go. Off you go, kiddos. That's the kids, not you guys. Yeah. Well, uh, from January to uh, February of 2009, January to February 2009, there was what came to be a historic drop in the stock market, one of the greatest drops in the stock market of United States history. It lost just under 20% of its value in those two months. And uh, it, we found actually later, just the next month in the month of March, that it lost some 50% of its value in comparison to two years prior. Uh, a recent or a financial industry CEO said that the that 45% of global wealth had dropped in that time, in that season. Uh, many people called it, in that period of time, many people called it the worst recession our country has been through since the 1930s. And it was right in the middle of that. Literally right in the middle of that. Note that I'm putting the emphasis on the word began. Right in the middle of that, that, that Joey and I began to raise money to plant this church. To live in the most, one of the most expensive cities in the country. Uh, we were finishing up our one-year church planning residency on top of uh, our, M, our work at our seminary. Joey was finishing up his MDiv, and uh, my wife and I had a nine-month-old baby. We were trying to raise all of this money in the midst of all of this kind of financial chaos uh, to live in a very expensive city, and I vividly remember praying to God and sharing with my friends, uh, in particular saying this to God, that God had you just had us to begin raising money a few months prior to this, we could have done it. But now, because there is so much chaos in the financial industry, I don't know what to do. Why are you doing this, God? And it was right about that time, had I, in the midst of my grumbling and complaining and rebuking to the Lord, uh, that I happened upon a sermon that a pastor was preaching. And in that sermon, he was uh, answering the question, why this historic recession? And I was listening to this sermon and was rebuked. Pastor said in the midst of that sermon, the, the, the answer to the question, why this historic recession? His answer was this. He said, the reason why we're having this historic recession was so that the church would advance and God would get the glory. So that the church would advance and God would get the glory. Not man and his power, his wealth, his designs. But the church would advance and God would get the glory. And I was struck and repented and told others of my faults, uh, dreams and hopes and aspirations as to how my plans would go. I was struck down. As I mentioned, I uh, repented. And it was not two or three months after that that my wife and my son and I moved here, May 1st, 2009. And it was a few months after that that Joey and Paige and their daughter at the time moved here to start a church that, uh, in a place we'd never known, never been to, didn't know anybody here. Uh, and soon after that, after Joey and Paige got here, in October of that year, we then began to gather people because enough interest was there. And then soon after that, in March the 28th, 2010, we formed a church. That'll be almost nine, we moved here almost nine, it's coming up on nine years ago. The church will celebrate next week uh, our eight-year anniversary. It's a very important service to us. Our brother Sean Cordell will be coming to preach. 
uh, where we'll recovenant uh, under these ideas that we'll give ourselves to. But throughout all of those things, throughout all of those plans, all of those designs, none of them hardly would have been my design and the way all this has gone about. Uh, We had to depend upon the Lord, and it was evident that through it all, this was God's design to plant His church, to start His church in the way that He would like, not the way that we would like, so that He would receive the glory. And not us, not our plans, not our designs. In fact, when I speak with church planners all the time, they say sort of, how did Restoration Church come into fruition? Uh, And I tell them all the time, it's the most boring story you're ever going to hear, but the most glorious all at the same time. We just taught the Bible and got people in our homes. That was it. And now you have this. It's all of God's power, God's strength, winning by weakness. The Lord loves to win that way. That's what we're going to see this morning. As we continue our series through the book of Judges, where we're seeing what happens to a people that reject authority and live as their own personal authorities. We are seeing that self as supreme is a recipe for disaster. Two simple points this morning. First will be winning by weakness. That's where we're going to spend most of our time. Second point will be losing by forgetting. We'll spend just a little bit of time there. Uh, And I am going to take a look at chapter 8. We had not originally intended to do that, but through prayer and study this week, it just made more sense to keep those two chapters together. Um, So next week, we'll listen from our brother Sean, and then we'll pick up on Easter in chapter 9. The fun Easter sermon where our visitors will come in and go, my goodness, what is going on at this church that this would be their Easter sermon? I'm wondering the same thing myself, but I trust the Lord's providence. All right, so here we go. Diving into the text here. First point, winning by weakness. This is where we're going to spend most of our time. We left off, you remember, last week in the middle of the story of the Israelites and their mighty man of valor, valor, this guy named Gideon. Just a brief review. The Israelites had fallen into this terrible cycle of forgetting the Lord, As a result, the Lord gives them over to the hands of the Amalekites and the Midianites. And for seven long years, the people raided the Israelites so severely that the Israelites had to retreat into the mountains. They then cry out to the Lord for mercy. We've seen them do this before. And instead, in this instance, we saw instead of them immediately, the Lord raising up a deliverer, he sends him a prophet who preaches a sermon to them. Uh, And in the portion of that sermon, they find what the prophet does. He reminds them of the Lord's grace to them. And he reminds them also the ways that he warned them against false worship. And also this prophet reminds them of their failure to trust the Lord and to then go on to have false worship. And so only after that does God then raise up Gideon. Gideon, we saw, is a curious character, right? We'll see even more that he's a curious character. This guy, not in our top 100 lists of up-and-coming CEOs or military leaders. Not even close to the top 100s, but the Lord loves to use people like that. At worst, uh, Gideon seems cynical about the Lord's activity. At best, he's doubting or distrustful. Yet the Lord reveals to Gideon he's going to use him to lead the Israelites to defeat the Midianites. Gideon responds, this is important for our text today, he responds to that uh, message from God by telling the Lord that he's from the weakest clan of Manasseh from the, and he's the weakest one in his own family. But the Lord says, I'm going to be with you. So after a series of events where Gideon tries to make certain God is going to do as he said, Gideon fearfully but faithfully begins to act. In chapter 6, verse 34, we see that all-important event of the Spirit clothing uh, Gideon in advance of the fight. Uh, And that brings us to chapter 7. But remember that Jerub Baal is Gideon's new name because he got that new name after 
tearing down the altar to Baal in chapter 6. Drub Baal means let Baal contend against him. Or Nathan's interpretation, bring it on Baal. That's his name. All right, so now here we find, back in chapter 6, he's, he's blown the trumpet. Some folks have come around. Gideon now has assembled about 32,000 Israelites. The Midianites and uh, the other guys are coming on up uh, close to them. Now, just to give you some context, 32,000 men uh, is roughly just under the size of the national stadium. That's about how many guys the Israelites have. We learn later in 8 verse 10, uh, that uh, the Israelites have roughly about 135,000 people. That includes an enormous herd of camels, which is important for the text to let us know that these are probably really important things in military uh, terms back in those days. But the Midianite and the Amalekite army, they have a lot of confidence, not only because of their size and their strength, but remember, for seven years, they've been pushing the Israelites around. And so basically, you have an army the size of a presidential inauguration complete with a cavalry of camels and tons of confidence, going up against an army just under the capacity of the Nat Stadium, led by a guy that was so scared to pull down an altar to Baal that he did it at the cover of darkness with ten other dudes to help him. There's the odds. This is not all looking so promising. And so on the eve of the big fight, we read those shocking words from the Lord to Gideon in verse 2. Those, that verse, I think, un- helps us understand the rest of chapter 7. There's the verse. It says, the people with you, this is the Lord speaking to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Too many. (laughs) Too many. If I'm Gideon, I'm going, what do you mean too many? We don't have enough folks here. Well, why does the Lord do this? Well, he goes on to say, If you're looking again in verse 2, the people with you are too many for me to give you into the hands of the Midianites, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. You see what the Lord's doing here? He's saying that if there is enough strength here for the Israelites to conclude that it was their strength, that it was their power, it was their determination that brought about the victory over the Midianites, then once again they would spurn the Lord's grace, spurn the Lord's mercy, and ignore God yet again. And so he says, then, as a provision to whittle down this army so that God would get the glory, he says, listen, tell anybody that's scared to fight, go home. Now we see this sort of being taught back in Deuteronomy 20, but we find that of the 32,000 soldiers, 22,000 head for the hills. I would have loved to have been sitting next to Gideon right about at that point. Right? Here's Gideon, sort of doubting, distrustful Gideon. And I'm imagining him watching, watching these people walk home. 20, so like Nat Stadium, they're all heading to the turnstiles, most of them. And he's standing there and Gideon's going, this is crazy. This is crazy. Well, it gets even better. He's now left with 10,000 people. And look down at verse 4. The Lord says, still too many. Still too many. I'm going to whittle it down some more. And it happens in this weird way. I know that some of you in your community groups have been trying to make sense of what comes next. All right? This whole lapping of the dog, the what, all this stuff. Y'all trying to figure that out. What does that mean? What does that mean? All right, well, here's my answer. Well, let me first off, let me explain it. Just First off, what God does, he brings the army down to the water, the 10,000 guys down to the water, and God tells Gideon set, you know, to make two groups. One group is for the people that take the water and kind of lap it like a dog. 
and take the other groups that are drinking the water that are just sort of going and sipping it straight up, sit them on another side. All right, and what you wind up having is two groups. On one hand, the guys that are lapping it up, there's 300 of those dudes roughly, and then you get the rest of them to whittle it down. And the Lord says, those 300, those are my guys. And all of you have been asking the question, what does that mean? What is the lapping of the ding? Are you ready? You have a pencil out? You have a piece of paper out. You ready? Here it comes. Here's what I think that means. I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know. The text doesn't tell us what it means. Right? The text doesn't tell us what it means. So you may have had a pastor like I had the kind of preaching kind of growing up, you know, well-intentioned, but they kind of say, well, the lapping of the dogs mean that these are more like dogs, and God's trying to show that they're like dogs. We don't know that. The Bible doesn't say that anywhere. All right? We just don't know. So what we do know and what the text is emphasizing, what is clear is that the Lord wants there to be fewer people so that he would then win the battle and God would get the glory. That's what's being taught here. That's what's important. And as I said, you got 300 guys, at which time the Lord says, now you're ready to fight. I'm sure Gideon's not so sure about this, but the Lord says it there in verse 7. With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. In verse 9, we see there that the Lord tells Gideon, arise, go up, go get them. I've given them to you. You're ready. Go, go get them. Finish off the fight. We sort of come to expect Gideon to need a little more clarity before he acts. And true to form, he does. And this is amazing. What we read in verse 10. Church family, be amazed at what you read in verse 10. But, tells him, go down, win the fight. But, if you're afraid, go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you'll hear what they say, and afterwards you'll be strengthened. Guys, stop and wonder, and behold your God. The Lord didn't have to do that. He didn't have to make provision for uh, Gideon's fears. Without Gideon even asking in this instance, the Lord makes an accommodation for Gideon's fear. An accommodation not to diminish Gideon's need to, do, to obey. No, no. But, but an accommodation that was meant to strengthen Gideon's faith in the Lord. He makes this beautiful, wonderful, compassionate provision for him. And so I ask you, are you fearful of what it might mean to give yourself Holy to the Lord. Are you fearful? I read this week uh, in an email from some partners we have in the Middle East where these people are ministering to people and there's two people that are interested in following Christ there in the Middle East and yet they're hesitant to give themselves to it because they've received threats as uh, for their lives and what they would, the implications they would have if they were to give themselves to Christ. They're fearful. Now, that doesn't describe most of our fears here. We don't have those same kind of pressures. But many of us are afraid to more radically live out our faith because of what the cost may be. We're fearful in that way. We sort of don't know what's going to come in a similar way of what Gideon is. And so, Christian, be encouraged by the character of God in this passage. It's evident that he is aware of Gideon's fears. He is aware that what he's asking him to do is hard. 
And so we learn from this that God is not some taskmaster up in heaven shaking his fist on his heavenly port saying, get it right, obey, or else I'm going to send you to hell. That is not what we read here, what God's like. The God of the Bible is compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. By the way, that's a recitation of the Old Testament. He meets us in our fears and he helps us to follow him. I got this wonderful text message this week from a brother at 11 o'clock on Wednesday night. Wednesday night, he texted me and said, this is a brother that used to be a member of this church, that's moved to another city, is now part of another church. And he sends a text at about 11 o'clock at night. He said, I just got back from spending some time with some brothers in our new church. And he said, Nathan, the, the method of discipleship that I learned at Restoration Church is what I want to do with my life. Now, when I first started meeting this guy, when this guy first came to our church, this is the same guy that said to his wife when he found out referencing community groups, you mean we have to go to church two times a week now? He was not happy. Didn't like it. I would meet regularly with this brother to kind of push him and work through some things that were going on in his life spiritually, things he was trying to understand. He was respectful, he was kind, but he pushed hard on me, really hard on me. And now this guy can't get enough of Jesus, can't get enough of the church, to the point where now he wants to, he wants to lead his wife and his kids and other men in the church to know and follow Christ and spend more time with him to help spur them on towards loving Christ. So he's overcoming those fears that he had originally of what it might mean if he gave himself wholly to Christ and kind of take on those fears of what it might mean because he's found that in Christ there's more to gain. And he would lose. But when it all started with this brother, it didn't start that way. It was more similar to Gideon. He's sort of sitting there going like, a lot of fears, not sure what's going to happen. And of course, he wasn't excited to obey the Lord because of what implications it may have upon him. And guess what? He was right. It upended his life. Just like it will yours if you try to radically give your life to Christ because of what implications may come. This guy, by the way, used to uh, use this time of year, this whole March Madness thing. He got mad, all right, like in a, all kinds of ways. He has his team that he religiously followed to the point of DVRing it and, and, and setting whole families and people aside. And now he's still interested in those things, but he's more interested in Jesus. He wasn't so different than Gideon at the beginning. He was doubtful to obey the words of God to, to make disciples. It was hard. It wasn't easy. But the Lord was patient with this brother. He was interested. And he kept sort of taking baby steps. And people would come around him. And the Lord was patiently with him, gently bringing him along as he strengthened his faith throughout. Just as the Lord does with Gideon here. And so don't be afraid, Christian. Don't be afraid. Don't stay in the safe places. Don't just do the minimum. Step into the light of God's grace. Trust God for grace to help others be delivered from the tyranny of their sin. That's what Gideon's doing here, right? He's leading God's people out of the tyranny of their sin to deliver people that they might remember and know God. Gideon is leading and he needs strength. His faith needs strength. And God is patiently doing that, and God can do that for you as well. Guys, the brother I mentioned sat in the same seats that you're sitting in this morning. He listened to the same sermons that you're listening to. 
He sat in the same community groups, went to the same members meetings, and he found the secret for living. He found the secret that is that God's ways are better than our ways. He trusted the Lord to walk in the light and help others walk in the light. And the Lord was patient with him. And he brought him along to the point of where he is today, drunk on discipleship and on Jesus. And it takes time. And it takes patience. And the church is going to be patient with you as you trust him. And as the Lord strengthens your faith, he will meet us in our fears and he will lead us out. And so guys, stop throwing fleeces out. Believe that God's power will meet you in your weakness as you seek to serve God and others. Don't fear. Be encouraged to fight for your faith, knowing that the Lord will meet you in and through it. And friend, if you are not following Christ and you're seeing the beauty of Christ and you're fearful of what it might mean if you love Jesus and start to follow Jesus, well, listen, be encouraged by this passage. Where it says there, as it were, in chapter uh, 7, verse 9 and 10, to kind of arise, as it were, to take up your cross and follow Jesus. But if you're afraid, remember that God's like this. He'll be patient with you. He's still going to keep his standard. He's not changing that. But if you're looking to follow Jesus and you're wondering what it may mean, he'll be patient with you to bring you along. Follow Jesus. Give all of yourself to Jesus. And know that he will be with you and the church will help you as well. This church has covenanted with each other to help people just like you to know what it means to follow Jesus and we'll help you. Well, this true story continues as Gideon, he takes no surprise. He takes option B from the Lord. Oh, okay, I can get a little more. Okay, I'll do that. Right. He takes Pura, goes down to the Midianite camp. They overhear a Midianite share. So they're in the cover of darkness, as it were, listening to this conversation they overhear a Midianite share with one of his comrades about a dream that he had and this dream sort of odd a cake of barley bread rolls down into the Midianite camp rolls over and takes out a tent that's the dream and then what we read next is evidently the words of God put in the mouth of one of his enemies this guy in verse 14 gives a interpretation to that dream he says this is no other than the sword of Gideon the son of Joash, a man of Israel, God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Guys, stand amazed at the sovereign hand of God who, impl- who can implant dreams and visions into the enemy and even have them interpreted in the way that he intends and have his people that he needs strength and sort of sitting in the shadows listening to it. All he can organize all of that for his glory. God is at work in so many ways if we only had eyes to see it. If he can use the enemy to speak strength into Gideon, what can he do in our lives together as a church? What can he do with us? If he can do this, what can he do? What limitations does God have? Right? He has none in that way. No weapon formed against him can stand. We find in Proverbs 21 that the Lord's able to turn the hearts of kings. And so from king's hearts to foot soldiers' lips, God is working all things together for our good and his glory. Nothing is too small or too big that he cannot use for his purposes to strengthen our faith and then have us to respond as our faith is strengthened. And that's the next question we need to ask. How do we respond? Gideon's faith is strengthened in this moment, just like God said it would be. So then, as God gives us his word, as we see that, and as our faith is strengthened, what do we do then? How do we respond? Well, look at verse 15. 
as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And then he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Two things there that we see in response. Two things. First, when, the, with, when with biblical clarity we see the Lord strengthening our hand to follow Him, we worship. We worship God. That's how we respond to the Lord's providence. That's how we respond when the Lord strengthens our faith. We worship. Because, right, because, don't lose sight of this, our faith is not ultimately about us. It's about Him. It's about Him. And so our immediate response should immediately be worship as our faith is strengthened. Because remember, guys, don't lose sight of the bigger idea of happening, what's happening in chapter 7 and all of Judges and all the Bible and all the world. Remember, God has whittled down this Israelite army so that they would not boast in anything but the Lord and His might. And so in this moment, at least, Gideon gets that. Gideon had made provision, or God had made provision for his fear. He was strengthened by uh, 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 some words and the interpretation of those words, and that then caused him to worship. So it is with us. We don't have to wait for Sunday morning to do this. We can see the hand of God in our workplaces and in our homes. And when we see that, see the hand of God, hear the words of God, our souls are strengthened. We worship. Wherever we are, we worship. And and to worship is to ascribe worth to God. To ascribe worth that He ought to be magnified. He is great. We want to lift up His praise. Bowing down to Him. That word, by the way, in the Hebrew is bowing down. Like He understands, I'm making myself small, lifting you up. So that's how we respond. Our faith is strengthened. That's what Gideon does. He worships. And secondly, after being strengthened by the Lord's word, We worship and then we move out towards obedience with confidence. That's what Gideon does. He is strengthened by the word of the Lord. He worships the Lord. And then he goes back and says to the army, well, to his 300 dudes, listen, arise. The Lord's got this. See, our obedience in the faith, our obedience in the fight of faith is out of our being sure that God is at work. Gideon listens to the word, he believes, he worships, and then he says, arise. Let's go do this thing that God told us to do. This, this is, guys, this is what we try to do every single week in this gathering. This is what we're trying to do in miniature every single week. This is why this gathering is so important in the life of a Christian. You've got to prioritize the assembly of the saints every single week. We, because we've got this rhythm here, don't we? What did we start out with this morning? A call to worship, right? There was a reading of the Word. And we sang, we worshiped. And then we get, now we get Bible, we get interpretation like that dream. And then after we finish the sermon, we sing, praising, worshiping God. And then what do we do? We scatter, we leave here. When we go live on mission, we go and say to our neighbors, our families, our co-workers, whoever it is we come in contact with, arise, 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 worship the Lord. And then we do that, whatever it is, Monday to Saturday. And then what do we do? We come back in here next Sunday. We do it all over again. Because guess what happened between Monday and Saturday? You forgot. Oh, that's right. That's why this meeting is so important. We're going to look at this more in a minute. 
But it's easy for us to forget. That's why God in his infinite wisdom set up a seven-day week wherein he put the resurrection on the first day of the week. He changed that whole thing. That's another sermon. But anyway, first day of the week, and we go through all of these things here, reading, worshiping, and so that we would then scatter out and then worship the God, the Lord. And then we come calling others to do the same. And then we come back in here because we're all kind of on empty, aren't we? From last week. And hopefully you'll worship today and you'll be full and you'll go back out, come back in here again. So if you if you go to this rhythm where you miss out on the rhythm of church, because church is just the kind of thing you do if you don't have anything else to do when you're in town, then don't be surprised if your love for God is not growing great. This is the rhythm that God set us in, that we would know him and worship him and be strengthened in our faith to call others to him. But anyway, here we go back into the story. Strengthened in the faith, Gideon then acts. And he devises a plan with his 300 guys. We can tell in verse 19, this attack is going to come in the middle of the night since it's uh, occurring at the time of the middle watch of the night. Gideon's plan includes no swords, no camels, no massive men. And instead, with trumpets in the right hand and torches covered by jars in the other, they surround the valley, because remember, they're above those guys. They surround this 135,000-man army. As they do, it's in the middle of the night. I was telling some guys this in, the, in the office this week, when I, heard jar, when I hear jars, I'm from the south. You haven't been able to tell. And when I hear jars, I think mason jars, right? Anybody else? Am I the only one? Sorry. Mason jars are clear. So I'm thinking, why are they putting clear jars over the torches? Well, they didn't have mason jars back in the day. Anyway, that shows how we need to run through our context when we think about the Bible. But anyway, those jars would not, they were covering up the light. So they break the jars, at which time an immediate flash of light would come out, plus the sound of it breaking the jars. Immediate flash of light comes out, and then they blow the trumpets. All 300 men would have had a trumpet. They blow a trumpet in the middle of the night. Imagine you, one, two, three in the morning. Light. Then they scream, for the Lord and for Gideon. That's their battle plan. Now, let's be honest. As crazy as this seems, you'd be a little shook up, right? And so they were. So these 135,000-man army, my suspicion, I don't know this, my guess is we find in 810 that 120,000 Mennonites are killed by their own swords. Come to that in just a second. My guess is that happened within the first 10, 15 minutes because they're waking up, they got swords next to them, and they wake up, oh, what, what, what's going on? You know, and they just go on, and then they realize, oh, we're fighting against each other, and then they take off. But look how this all came about. Look at verse 22. When they blew the 300 trumpets... Underline those next two words. The Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against the, all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerah. But did you notice who did it? Guys, this is why we need the Bible. This is why we need the Bible. If the Washington Post would have been there, they would have properly reported on everything that you saw. All right? Dude's dying, army's fleeing trumpets, strange, you know, jars. They would have said all, they would have given you all of that information. But you would not have the theological interpretation, the God-sized interpretation of the event. That's why we need God's word to help us understand the events. Because we see that God did this. The Lord set every man's sword against his comrade. The Lord promised to bring victory and he brought it. 
We learn in, again, chapter 8, verse 10, 120,000 Midianites are killed by the swords of themselves. Gideon's 300 soldiers don't even so much as bring a single soldier down, we can see. And at which time, after the, the battle is already won and they're fleeing, Gideon then calls out the reserves and to kind of finish up the victory. We'll come to that in a moment. But for now, for now, the point of the passage, guys, the point of this passage is to help us see that the Lord won by Israel's weakness. Why? So that the Israelites, so that we might not boast in victories. But instead that we would boast in the power and in the might and in the mercy of God. That's why this has all happened the way that it has. Because clearly God had to be the one to do all of this. Right? 300 Men armed with torches and trumpets defeat a 135,000 man army. That can't happen unless the Lord does it. And guys, if you think that's amazing, if you think this victory is amazing, what if I told you? What if I told you that instead of these great odds, there was a story of even greater odds that brought about the clarity of the Lord's victory? What if I told you instead of 300 men that brought down an 135,000-man army, what if I told you there was even one of even greater odds where one man would take down the greatest enemy of all in the whole world? What if I told you that is how God brought about true and lasting victory? Would you believe that? Sound too hard to believe? Well, what if I told you that the way that great victory, this one man's victory over the greatest enemy in all the world, what if I told you he didn't do it by blowing a trumpet or by shouting, but instead he did it by saying nothing, but gladly submitting to a cross so that life would come? What if I told you he won by making himself even weaker than 300 men? That's what Christ did. This true story in this passage, Judges chapter 7, is meant to help us understand how Jesus would secure the great victory and then how we are supposed to respond in, out of that victory. So he brings, God brings a, a victory over the greatest enemy, which is our sin, by sending his son to take the form of a baby. That's right, a, a baby, right, born to two otherwise insignificant figures of Mary and Joseph who live in this know-nothing, tiny, dusty little town called Nazareth that nothing good comes from. The Son of God, the one who holds all things together by the word of his power, made a man. A man, by the way, who got tired, who got thirsty. A, A man that got sad when things happened to him that he didn't like. A man that got thirsty and hungry. A man who gave himself up on a cross. And die so that all those who trust in him would find power by his weakness. Like the world would have thought Gideon had lost when they saw those thousands streaming away, so the world thought Jesus had lost when he hung on the cross. But this is the way that God wins through in and through weakness. And why does the Lord do it this way? Galatians 6.14, so that we might not boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we would not boast in anything except him, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord wins through weakness so that we who are weak might see our need for the power of God and declare that he and he alone is worthy of all of our lives because he and he alone is able to empower us to live the lives that we are supposed to live. Guys, we have nothing to give, nothing to offer for our righteousness, nothing. We can do nothing because apart from him, we are totally weak. All grace. That's what we've been singing about it this morning. It's all grace. It's all mercy. My salvation is not because I have an MDiv. If my MDiv has taught me anything, is that I don't know much. and I'm an idiot, right? I mean, I'm super weak. I, I tell people all the time, my best prayers are in the two minutes leading up to coming here. You want to know why? Because I feel really weak to stand up here and talk to you guys every week. And I go, I can't do this, God. I can't do it. I can't do it. You're going to have to do this. I make myself weak, and then I try to help you see God. And then you get empowered. And that's how this thing works. We understand that we're weak. It's all grace. It's all mercy. It's all Him. This is the entire point that God made to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Listen to this. 5 to 10. I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Did you catch that? Washington, D.C.? Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. In other words, I got my you know, doctorate from Ivy League school. I, I, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited. Do you see what God's doing here? To keep me. God, in his beautiful, loving kindness, is keeping him from getting conceited. What does he do? He gives him pain. Three times. Let me back up. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Why is that, God? Because my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of what? My strength? No, my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Christian, why do you try so hard to project strength in yourself? When God has shown you that his power is made perfect in your weakness. Boast, Christian, boast all the more gladly of your weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on you. Can't you see, Christian, why this is why you have so little rest? This is why. We all know that you're not as strong as you project yourself to be. We know that. We all know that. You want to know why we know that? Guess what? Because we know that we're not strong as we uh, project ourselves to be. We know it. The power of the Christian life is seen in the cross. I feel like I have to say that more and more to our Christian people around us. The symbol of our faith is a cross, an execution device. That's the symbol of our faith. Do not boast in anything but the cross. Any good thing that you have was given to you by 
God in his grace. This is the secret to contentment, to joy in the midst of pain. We admit that we're a wreck, that we're weak. But Christ is strong. His grace is sufficient for us. No one and nothing else is. More of him, less of me. Guys, this town is riddled with the idol of power. This town is riddled by it. Right? You kind of get stack up degrees and internships and these kinds of things so as to get that right job so that you can project to talk about how powerful you are and how much influence you have, no matter what it may be. Uh, and you then think that if you can get all this power or people respect you because you have all this power, then life's going to be good. But it doesn't work. Doesn't work. Every single leader you think about that you admire, every one of them struggles with insecurities. Every one of them. You may not think they do, but they do. The only ones that don't struggle with those kinds of insecurities are the ones that just own their weakness and know that they're a mess and lean upon God to give them strength and rest. Christianity, guys, is the only worldview on planet Earth that thinks this way. We're the only ones that understand that to die is to live. We're the only other ones that believe that you have to be brought low in order to be brought high. That the way up is the way down. To bear the cross is to bear the crown. Is to wear the crown. God called us out of darkness, brought us into the light by the Son of God by making Himself weak so that we would then be strong in Him. Not in ourselves, in Him. So the only way we will keep walking in the light is by owning our weakness and confessing our need for the power of God in Christ Jesus. You can stop trying to fool everybody. Because it didn't work in any way. You're already tired from trying to fool folks. It ain't working. So just own it. Boast all the more gladly. Isn't that what it says? In your weaknesses so that the power of God may rest upon you. No one in this church is impressive. No one. Jesus is the only one that's impressive in this church. Boast all the more gladly in your weaknesses so that you might rest in the strength of God. John Newton once said something that I love, one of my favorite quotes. He said, if he were to travel the earth in order to find the best Christian, it says there, quote, more than two to one that we should not find that person in a pulpit or any public office. Perhaps some old woman at her wheel or some bedrid person hid from the knowledge of the world in a mud-walled college would strike our attention more than any of the doctors or reverends with whom we are acquainted. Let us not measure men, much less ourselves, by our gifts or services. One grain of grace, Newton says, is worth more than abundance of gifts. So, brothers and sisters, repent from arrogance and pride. You and I have received nothing were it not for the grace of God. So humble yourselves. Repent from that arrogance and pride. Own your weaknesses so that God would be glorified. This is the way to win the world. And guys, we've got to do this regularly because we're so prone to forget all of this stuff. And that's where I want to leave us. Win by weakness. Secondly, we lose by forgetting. We lose by forgetting. Just as we have come to expect things get bad right after the Lord delivers Israel from the Midianites. As I mentioned at the end of chapter 7, Gideon rallied some tribes to follow up on the now routed Midianites. Uh, as this happened in chapter 8, verse 1 to 3, you see the Ephraimites, they come out and they're a little bothered that they weren't able to be part of the fight as part of this victory. 
And in verse 2, Gideon kind of calms them down by telling them, listen, you guys are in a better position than I am. He tells them that they're in a better position than his own tribe is. That seems to calm the Ephraimites. And then in verses 4 to 9, we get some more detail on Gideon. This is something, by the way, we've not seen yet in Judges, right? Now we're getting, most of the time they deliver him, there's rest. Now we're getting detail. And we get some detail on Gideon in particular. If you look there in 4 to 9, 8, chapter 8, 4 to 9, his exhausted men, 300 men, they need something to eat. He tells the citizens of Succoth to give them some food. But we learn in verse 6 that the officials of Succoth, they don't want to help Gideon and his boys because they haven't quite won the battle in their minds because they can't produce the two kings. They're thinking, we help you, we might get in trouble, so we're not helping you. And listen to how Gideon responds in verse 7. Well then, when the Lord has given, these are the kings of Midian, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. It's harsh, right? Then Gideon leaves there and he goes to this place called Penuel. Similar things happen there in verse 9. Gideon then says, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. And so from verses 10 to 12, we see Gideon finally gets those kings of Midian. And then he comes back to the leaders of Succoth and he shows them the two kings and he says to them in verse 15, Gideon shows those kings and says, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me. Then in verse 16, says he, quote, taught these men a lesson. In verse 17, he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Hold on to that for a second. Look at verse 18. We learn that apparently, let's move to the kings, these enemy kings. We learn that apparently these kings, he confronts these two kings on the fact that they have uh, killed some people in Tabor. Sort of a strange thing. If you read verse 18, he's like, where's those people you killed? Uh... And in verse 19, we find out it was Gideon's brothers. And then strangely, we learn Gideon asks his young son to come and kill these two kings. Odd, right? We begin to feel sympathetic for the son that he has to do this. But he doesn't do it. The son doesn't. Gideon's son doesn't do it, doesn't kill them. And so in verse 21, we read that Gideon kills the kings himself. Now listen to this, guys. This is important to understand. I wrestled with this a lot this week. We've seen gruesome killings before, and we've called them the justice of God, haven't we? Remember like Jael and the Sisera and all that stuff. Remember uh, Eglon and the left-handed man kills Eglon. Ehud kills Ehud. Remember Bezek way back at the beginning, the thumbs and the toes, and he said he's getting what he got. But here, I think something something different is happening. The feeling of this passage is different. In following up on the victory of the Lord, Gideon seems to be changing the more that power comes into his hand. The power seems to be corrupting him. His, now his boast is not so much in his weakness, it's in his power. The power seems to be corrupting him to the point of viciously assaulting him. But note the language there, out of a personal vendetta. This no longer seems to be about delivering Israel from the hand of the Midianites. This seems more about them, him being taunted, him, those guys killing his own brothers, this kinds of things. It seems to be more about Gideon's pride. And then in verse 22, we find the Israelites, as a result of all this good stuff happening, we find the Israelites want Gideon to establish a monarchy. And on the surface, Gideon gives the right answer. Look at verse 23. I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Good answer, right? Yeah. But then look what he does. 
his confession doesn't match his actions. He does something strange. Even though he denies the request to be king, he goes on to act like a king. He, makes, he has them to donate all of their kind of spoils from the victory, uh, some of the gold and these kinds of things, and he creates this thing called an ephod. An ephod was something that the high priest, Israel's high priest, would have worn when interceding with God on behalf of Israel. That's what an ephod was. There's only one of those. And yet Gideon creates a second one. And then notice what he does with it. So first off, it's strange that he took the spoils after he's saying he wasn't going to be king. Second, it's strange that he makes an ephod. And third, it's strange that he makes the ephod and he keeps it in his own hometown of Orpha. And why? We learn there that it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Well, in part, we know why. Because the idolatrous Israelites, we see there in verse 27, they whore themselves after this ephod. So basically, Gideon facilitates an idol. But here's my question. Why is Gideon making a second ephod when the high priest would have already had the one he was supposed to have in the place he was supposed to have it? Why is he doing that? Well, there's rest in the land of for, for 40 years. That, that is rest from war. But then we get more selfishness and arrogance from Gideon. Look in verse 30. He takes many wives. Now, this is something later kings would do, and it always results, every time, it results in terrible circumstances when you get this polygamy happening. So don't miss this, guys. In other words, polygamy is placed in the Bible to reveal its harmful effects, not to endorse it. But it's placed in there to see it never works out. Polygamy is placed in the Bible. It's mentioned there not as a model, but as an illustration of what happens when you deny God's design of one man and one woman marrying. And so to cap Gideon's abuse of power off, we learn that one of his kids, to me this is most telling, that kind of makes sense of chapter 8. He has a child from a concubine, and he names him Abimelech. We're going to learn more about him on Easter. Abimelech means, you ready for this? My father is king. We're going to learn more about him. But even though Gideon said the Lord will be the ruler, the power seems to have gotten to Gideon. And now it's more about him and his pride. And he's now taking on the strength and then using that to do all kinds of things that facilitate false worship. And he uh, takes advantage of women and these kinds of things. It's not good. Gideon does not end well. So here's the point of chapter 8. The moment you forget who the Lord is and where the power to do what is right and enjoy what is good comes from, the moment you forget those things, you begin to lose. Even if it feels like you're winning. That's what the sad ending of Gideon's life teaches us. And no surprise, that's what we learn from Israel as well. As we see there in verse 34, after Gideon dies, the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies. And you ought to say, how could they do that? After all that the Lord had done. Guys, listen, you and I do that every day, right? We do this all the time. We do this all the time. We take the good from the Lord and then we quickly forget him only to go on to serve other idols. They may not be Baal, but they could be something else. And so why do you think, guys, just ask yourself this question. Why do you think unbelief is so predominant in developed countries? It's not because most people would say, well, it's because of God's education. They can explain God away. There's no silver bullet against the existence of God. No, what's happening here, the predominance of unbelief in developed countries is explained right here in this passage. 
when we get deliverance from our enemies and enjoy all the spoils of the world, we quickly forget God. We forget our weakness. And we quickly begin to think we deserve the good life. We deserve comfort and ease. And we abuse God's gifts, thinking ourselves strong. And slowly and oh so subtly, we begin to drift away from God and toward gods of our own making. And before you know it, like Gideon and these Israelites, we begin to boast in ourselves, thinking that somehow we did all of this. Forgetting our boast is only in the Lord. Forgetting that we're clay pots. We're weak vessels. We need the Lord. And so Restoration Church, never forget. Our boast is only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. Every good gift comes from Him. He is our deliverer. We know that verse, right? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose your soul? You lose by forgetting. You lose by forgetting the fact that you're weak and that God is strong. You win by owning those weaknesses and knowing that God is your strength and walking in His ways is right. Boasting only in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to regularly cultivate an intimate knowledge of God. The God that we were made for. Because here's the thing. Israel's slide was not overnight. What did we see there? Forty years go by. And you'll see it in a couple of weeks. They'll be right back where they were. So guys, take risks on the power of God. Confess your weakness. Go to Him for strength. Show up here every week to worship. And then leave here to call others to arise that God would receive the glory. And lastly, friend, if you're not a Christian, I hope what you have seen through this is that it's not your good works that make your way to God. No amount of church attendance and Bible reading and Bible memorization or or moral living will get you to God. We have to own those weaknesses. The way that you get to God is by saying, I can't get to God. You've got to do it for me, God, at which time God shows you Jesus and brings you home. Trust him alone for salvation and enjoy him forever. Let's give thanks. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us. We thank you that you are kind, that you're patient with us in our fears, that you bring us along to obey you. Lord, we're thankful that we can just agree. We don't have to play the game anymore, that we are weak clay pots, full of all kinds of paradoxes, contradictions. Christ is our righteousness. May we regularly see Him, that we might not forget Him, and know that by owning our weakness, we then can lean upon You to be made strong. Help us as a church to be this kind of a people. And keep us, God, from having any kind of gains be forgotten like it was with Gideon, such that we go on to despise you in your ways. May we trust you in our weakness, knowing that in Christ, in his resurrection, we can be made strong. We pray in Jesus' name.